Well, good morning. Uh, so good to be with you in, in continuing in the series fight. And uh, I want to tell you just an opening story of a, a time I fondly remember. It was years ago, and I was leading a men's retreat at one of my former churches at Covenant Pines, where we, where we take the men. And it was just a time of, of personal devotion. And, and God met me in this profound way, just my encounter with Jesus and his word. And maybe you think, oh, you're a pastor. That happens all the time. No, we're normal people. We have ebbs and flows, up and downs in our faith journey and our life journey. But there was something special about this moment. And God met me in, in the word and in the, the invitation of the apostle John, one of Jesus' disciples, in the beginning of the book of 1 John, and, and he said this, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And it struck me that John was literally inviting all his readers throughout history, you and me as well, to have the same fellowship with Jesus that he did. So first of all, in there, it's like, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. I mean, John knew what it was to shoot the breeze with Jesus. He saw him do miracles. He saw him heal people. He saw him pray to the Father and teach like no one else. And so he was a living witness to walk three years with Jesus. And secondly, so that you may have fellowship with us. He's testifying to be able to draw us into the very same communion that he experienced with Jesus and the Father. John was known as the beloved disciple. We, we see, get a picture of him at the Last Supper, leaning back into the chest of Jesus and because he's the beloved disciple, I believe when he's inviting us into this fellowship that we can be invited into what he would maybe call the beloved community. In our series, Fight, we've covered uh, in the first week our fight against the enemy, Satan himself. And he primarily uses uh, lies to deceive us, which then last week we talked about the flesh. And because of the enemy's lies we get disordered desires in our flesh. And then finally today, we're talking about what happens in the world, the reign of the world under Satan's control. Here's our big idea for today. The way to overcome the impact of the world is to know and grow in Jesus within the beloved community of the church. So first of all, let's talk about the world. I'm reading from the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. There's something very ironic uh, that the Apostle John is writing, do not love the world. I mean, this is the same guy that wrote the most famous sentence in the Bible. We're talking touchdown Jesus, John 3.16. 
For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. So what's going on? Well, in John 3.16, the world is talking about all the people of the world that God so loves. But in 1 John here, the, the world is that system, is the, the fallen world, the ideas, the influence that lies under the control of Satan. I love this definition uh, of the world from pastor and author John Mark Comer. The world is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. It's his book, uh, Live No Lies, from which we've kind of constructed this series. And uh, it's one of the best books that a few of us have, have read in a long time. I highly recommend it. John Mark Comer, Live No Lies. Um, and he, he basically lays out this, this working strategy of the devil, which starts, the devil uses deceptive ideas that play in our flesh to disordered desires, which then become normalized in sinful society, the world. So the devil uses deception, lies, in our flesh become disordered desires, not the way we should desire God and the things of God, which then become normalized in the world. To better describe the world, the Apostle John gives us three main lusts and temptations. And again, he says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life come not from the Father, but from the world. So what's happening here? First of all, the lust of the flesh. Flesh is that which stands in opposition to the Spirit and what the Spirit desires, the things of God. And yes, lust stands for sexual um, desire, but it also stands for anything sensual uh, around the flesh, of food, of drink, of instant gratification, worldly pleasures, the lust of the flesh. Secondly, the lust of the eyes is centered primarily around greed and our desire for things that we see. So with greed comes envy and jealousy and discontentment, the lust of the eyes. And thirdly, the pride of life. With pride comes overconfidence, arrogance. We put the self on the throne versus God. And with that, we want to rule ourselves and not listen to God's way. So those are the three main lies, temptations of the world. We find these three in Jesus' famous temptation when Satan tempts him in the desert. First of all, the, the lust of the flesh, Satan says, turn these stones into bread. He had been fasting for 40 days. So the lust of the flesh is turn these stones into the bread. And the lust of the eyes Satan takes him up onto a mountain and shows him the kingdoms of the world. He says, if you bow down to me, all this can be yours. The lust of the eyes, the greed. And then finally, the pride of life is the, the temptation. Satan says, throw yourself off the temple and let God catch you, is to do something spectacular and to receive glory and pride for himself. But even before Jesus walked uh, earth as, as man and the son of man, these same three temptations came when Satan first came as the serpent in the garden. We read in Genesis 3, 6, 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. So here the parallels are the lust of the flesh are, she says, is good for food, or Jesus turned stones into bread. And the lust of the eyes, it was pleasing to the eye. For Jesus, it was the kingdoms, the splendor of the world. And the pride of life was, it was desirable, the fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom, to grow in that pride and arrogance. Satan is not very creative, is he? But he's very effective in using deception to lead to disordered desires in our flesh that become normalized in a sinful world. Why are we fasting, church? Obviously, it's not very fun to fast and to not eat the things we enjoy. And there's some good health benefits. I'm told I snore a lot less during the Daniel fast in January. It's kind of nice to not be punched as much during the night. I deserve it. I deserve it. But that's not the main purpose. There's good health benefits from from doing some of these diets or fasts, but that's not the main purpose. The purpose is to expose the lies of the enemy, to be convicted by our disordered, sinful desires in our self and our flesh, and to bring revelation of how the world is influencing us and how we can remember to follow God's word and God's way. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.19, the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. And Jesus said in Luke 16.15, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And so we need discernment and wisdom and repentant hearts to be hearing from Jesus and how we are to fight the good fight and take our stand against the devil and the flesh and the world. I love what John Mark Comer says on this. We would be wise to slow down and honestly seek out Jesus' wisdom on the moral issues of our day. But were we to do so, we would inevitably find at least a few examples of jarring difference between what Jesus and both the left and right's visions of human flourishings. The late Dr. Larry Hurtado wrote a book uh, in his history of early Christianity called Destroyer of the Gods. And he tells the story of the small band of Jesus followers who overcame paganism and won over the Roman Empire in only a few centuries. And he says the church was marked by five distinctive features, all of which made it stand out against the empire, the Roman Empire. First of all, the church was multiracial and multiethnic with a high value for diversity and inclusion. Secondly, the church was socioeconomically diverse with a high value of caring for the poor. Third, it was staunch in its active resistance to infanticide and abortion. 
Fourth, it was resolute on marriage and sexuality between one man and woman for life. And fifth, it was nonviolent, both on a personal level and a political level. Now, if someone uh, leans left in their politics, the first two are going to be golden and forget about the rest. If we learn, if we lean right, then three and four or what we call the Bible, and we forget about the rest. But if we get sucked into either side, we are letting the influence of the world keep us from standing firm on the gospel way of Jesus that includes all five. The sad fact is that if we're not fighting against the enemy, our flesh, and the world, then we can fall victim to the temptation to be more loyal to our favorite ideologies and political parties than to Jesus and his teachings. If our version of faith looks more like our political parties than it does the early church, I believe it's time to do a little soul searching, maybe more fasting and praying and confessing and digging in the word what do the people of the way look like? How can we model these five crucial elements of the early church? So first of all, there's, there's the world and the three influences, temptations of the world. Secondly, the way we overcome the influence of the world is by active in participation in what we can call the beloved community. Again, our big idea is the way to overcome the impact of the world is to know and grow in Jesus within the beloved community of his church. In the verses right before our passage today, uh, the Apostle John is writing to the whole church, to the old, to the young, to the children, and reminding them who they are in Christ and why he's writing this letter to them. And it says in 1 John 2.14, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. He warns his readers of the existence of evil and, and the, the problem of the flesh and the world, but he is, he is not afraid of the wicked one. If we are in Jesus, we have overcome the evil as Pastor Justin said in the first week, it's no contest. It's not a Marvel movie, good and, and bad fighting till the very end scenes of the movie. It's no contest. We have overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony. And two main things come out of this passage on the world from John in these writings. First of all, victory is assured. We've overcome. But secondly, resistance is required. We have to fight. We have to fight the enemy. We have to fight the flesh and fight against the influence of the world. The key practice for fighting the world is gathering with Christ's body, the church. God has always been gathering a remnant of his people, people that are loyal to him, loving him, worshiping him, not being overly influenced by the world. In Elijah's day, Elijah thought he was alone, and God said, I've kept 7,000 who have not bowed down to Baal, that not bowed down to the idols. 
George Barna, the great Christian faith uh, trend researcher, calls this remnant the resilient disciples. Why do we need the church? We need to stand together as a community of believers if we want to be the remnant, resilient disciples, true followers of Jesus who are committed to be transformed by him and to impact the world. We started off talking today about Apostle John's excitement for inviting us into the fellowship of God's perfect love. And I said, because he's the beloved disciple, we can call ourselves the beloved community. But in, in actuality, these words come from Martin Luther King Jr. And I, I owe this knowledge to a good friend, Pastor Luke Swanson of Community Covenant in North Minneapolis. Pastor Luke is the, is the uh, can I say, blackest white preacher I've ever met. Uh, just a beautiful multiracial community at Community Covenant in North Minneapolis. He would often talk about Martin Luther King Jr. speaking on the beloved community. And so this past Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I was reflecting on his impact, on his influence. In uh, 1957, in Justice Without Violence, Martin Luther King says this, And so the aftermath of violence is bitterness. The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption and reconciliation. This is a method that seeks to transform and to redeem and win the friendship of the opponent and make it possible for men to live together as brothers in a community and not continually live with bitterness and friction. God can do miracles of the heart. He can do miracles of community if we seek to be the beloved community. Martin had a dream, and his dream held on to a God of justice, a God of peace, a God of reconciliation. Would it be that we would keep fighting for Christ's body to be united in him, and we would be known for the way we love and seek justice and seek peace and shalom in our community? If I'm honest, I can't wait for the Daniel fast to be done and to eat some things that, that I want to eat more regularly. But, but I want to just testify uh, this time more than any other that I've ex- done the Daniel fast. God has just been blessing my times with him. And he's used this time to say no to a little bit of the flesh, to, to invite more of the spirit. And the nearness of God's presence during this time has been amazing just to to confess sin, to realize more of the the tactics of the enemy and my disordered desires in my flesh and the influence in the world. But it's so hard to walk this line, to hold together these two concepts of the world, to first of all, so love the world that God so loves the people of the world, and to not love the world, the influence of the enemy and our flesh that become normalized in society. 
It's so hard to live in the world, but not of the world, isn't it? But God wants to use these opportunities to draw away to him and to, to bring revelation and to bring conviction and to bring clarity of his truth and his way, not what the world says. I started off talking today about being overwhelmed by the invitation of John to, to join in, to have the same fellowship that he and the other disciples had with Jesus. And I talked about the first two parts of that, but I didn't talk about the third part of that. When he closes, he says, we write this to make our joy complete. Doesn't it seem odd? Wouldn't he write this to make your joy and my joy complete? Doesn't that seem selfish? We write this to make our joy complete. But I think it, it's, it's profound because it speaks to the profound purpose and calling that we have. If we have known Jesus, we want to make our joy complete by telling others. Uh, psychologist Erickson calls this the, the final stage of the purpose of mankind is generativity, to make a lasting impact on others, our heritage and future generations by contributing good, real good to others. It's not selfish. He's experienced the joy and the truth and the freedom of Jesus, of overcoming in Jesus and he has this need, this joy to, to tell us and to welcome us into that beloved community. The way to overcome the world is to know and grow in Jesus within the beloved community of his church. And I believe our world so desperately needs the church to stand up, to be different to not remain in a holy huddle. The world doesn't need to see more hate and more self-preservation that it sees in much of the church today. It needs to see the people of God resist the world's influence, seek after holiness, and make their joy complete by living and loving others by the power of Jesus. New Hope, let's be this people. Fighting the enemy, dying to our flesh, resisting the disordered love of the world. Let's be the beloved community and show the world Jesus. Just a couple questions for you to reflect I love how the on online church gets these questions and can go with this. So I wanted to give these to you. Is, first of all, is God revealing, especially at this time, any of Satan's lies and deceptions, disordered desires in your flesh and the influence of the world on you? And secondly, is God inviting you to any practical steps to experience more of his community? power and grace through participation in the beloved community of the church. Come to the No Regrets Conference. Come to Men's Retreat. Come to the Women's Conference. Come to the Women's Retreat. Get involved in recovery. 
get involved in a hope group, in a spiritual friendship. We need community. That is the one way we overcome the influence of the world. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just thank you uh, that it's no contest. Thank you, Jesus, that you are Lord of lords. You are King of kings. You are the mighty one. You're our friend. You're the lover of our souls. And Lord, we just want to bring ourselves before you and we want to be changed by you. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for the opportunity to confess our sins, to be cleansed, to to walk with you. We pray for revelation. We pray for breakthrough during this Daniel fast. We pray for your love and your spirit. We pray a breaking off of things of the world that are not your true church. That we would be your people. That we would stand different. And that many more would call in the name of Jesus because of your spirit in and through your body, your beloved community. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.